what we decided to do for the sermon part of this service is for me to preach ten, three ten-minute sermons split up because they're going to be on particular songs that we're going to sing. And the reason I'm preaching on the different songs we're going to sing in their theological content is not because I've already run out of ideas for what to preach on at Christmas. <laughs> Last week, I YouTubed Okay, 1016. Okay, last week I YouTubed um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one of the um, artists that was like second or third most hits um, was, was a young woman who sings very well, but who very openly, publicly despises the theology in the song. Which, you know, I don't own Hark the, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and if she wants to sing it, she can. And that's what YouTube is for. And, um, but the... The thing that frustrates me is its effect on people because when that kind of thing happens, it's sort of like a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose spirituality. It's, let me empty all the doctrinal content out of a song and then sing it and then be depressed because the song doesn't mean anything to me. You know? It's kind of like coming to communion, but you don't believe Jesus died for your sins. Well, that's an empty ritual. Well, yeah, it's an empty ritual because it's filled with the theology you just took out of it. Whenever people say, you know, it's really religion and for church, and all these rituals and all this stuff, it's just, it doesn't really do anything for me. It's because you don't believe any of the stuff. It's not rocket science, is it? Um, but the thing that's particularly ironic about that with this particular song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is because it's all about harking and heralding. Right? The whole song is about telling people the content of the song. Right? It, the whole song is about just like the angels did the night Jesus was born, now you and us, we all did, let's all herald, that is, tell the news that's contained in this song. And when you, whenever you hear news, you expect people to believe it. Right? As if the economy wasn't bad enough, some more good news this Christmas— Apparently, if you use a neti pot, you can die. Which means, I'm glad my kids aren't here because they would be expecting them, themselves to be orphans at any moment. Because um, you, you can apparently get brain-eating amoebas by using a neti pot if you use tap water with it. But here's the good news. It only kills people in Louisiana because <laughs> it has to be a warm enough climate for that kind of amoeba. So another Reason to live in the godforsaken, wimp-swept tundra of Wisconsin. <laughs> awesome, but use distilled water if you go south. <laughs> but listen, you expect people who tell you news, right? You expect them to believe that it's true. You expect it to be something you need to know. And, but you expect it to be for people who don't know it's true. What's the point at news? Because what do we call news that we already know? We call it old news. Because we already know it. But see, the cool thing about Heart the Herald Angels Sing is it's not just for the church. Because it's a herald song. It's sung by the people who know it, but who's it for? It's for the people who don't know it. Because there's more than one category in the world, right? There's the category of the devoted people who believe it. There's the people who hypocritically sing it and don't believe it. There's the people who openly mock it. But then there's the people who just don't know what the heck they think about it. And the thing that makes 
this song particularly important is that it is, it points us to one of the most important things about the manger, about God becoming human. It's all about heralding. God didn't want us to be lost in unknowing. Jesus is a savior and a message in one. And, and here's the thing that we, we have to get out of this, though, particularly for those of us who don't really like doctrine. We like to call it dogma because it sounds more pejorative and then we don't have to argue for it. It, it just, and here's what, the, the joy and the peace offered in this song is offered on the basis of the doctrine of the song. It offers you peace and joy, not because it's Christmas and we wear hats. Or that you can have chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Right? It's a, or, that, or that you can sing a song about a disturbingly deviant Santa. <laughs> but it's because God has said something very specific, very clear, very focused, and very true. And then he's heralded it so we can know it. So before we sing this song, I want to take you through its content really briefly. In, in verse 1, in Hark the Herald Angels Sings, right? Hark the Herald Angel. I, there's a reason why I'm not in the band. Um, it says that, um, that there's peace on earth, earth, right, and mercy mild. Why? For one very, very specific reason. Because God and sinners have what? Been reconciled. That is the basis for peace on earth and for all the nations then singing for joy, which is the next line. Right, you get to the second verse, and it says the main reason, the main way this is accomplished, that we celebrate at Christmas, is that the first step happened. That is, that the incorporeal, unseen God became seen, became incorpus, or infleshed, right? What is Incarnate mean. It's from Latin, incarnate, in meat. He became a human being. Why? So that he could be the Savior and so he could be the herald. And he was heralding the fact that he was the Savior. Right? And it ends with Jesus, our Emmanuel. Where, what's Emmanuel? Emmanuel means God is with us. Where does it come from? Isaiah chapter 7, right? The virgin will be the child, and she will bear a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means, because he's here, I know God is with me. Okay, so, but how does that, why does that matter? Why, why is God being incarnate more than just, there's a Savior, or there's a, there's a God-man? Because he's the Savior. It says in the next verse, it says, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, which is, of course, a mixed metaphor because nowhere in the Bible does it refer to the resurrection from the dead as a second birth, does it? Nowhere. No, it's a mixed metaphor. The, the second birth isn't referenced anywhere in the Bible, but there is something referenced in the Bible called the new birth. The new birth. And that is not resurrection, but regeneration. That is, when you believe in Jesus— when you trust the news heralded by the herald Savior that he has come to reconcile us, the sinners, with God, the Savior, then God does a work called regeneration, which is an inner transformation that will change you. 
right? And then you will be resurrected from the dead and free from any judgment. And the last verse says, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thy image in thy place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. And I can't see the last line, but it's really good. <laughs> the point here is, though, do you see? There's, he's, Charles Wesley was, was an Oxford scholar the hymn writer. And he was, he's pulling together this imagery because in the first, he takes us all back to the first pages of the Bible. And he says, in the first pages of the Bible, God created human beings in his image. That was the point, that we were going to be like him. And when sin happened, that image got twisted and broken and cursed and bent. And within the curse, when God cursed humanity and everything under humanity's control, there was a promise built into it in Genesis 3.15, when he cursed the woman, he said, he said that her offspring would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. Theologians call that the proto-euangelion, the first good news, the first heralding, the first something good is going to happen. In, God is so profoundly loving that why, in the moment when he had, he cursed humanity for our rebellion and sin, he built into it the first promise, the first heralding, that a seed would come from the woman that would crush the curse. Because, like it says in Romans 5, 14 and 15, there was one Adam that did not live out his image and his likeness, but there was a greater second Adam, Jesus, who came and who crushed the serpent's head and who re-stamps the image on all who believe. And the, here's, the, here's the best news about this, is that you do nothing. This is not advice. It's news. You either believe it or you don't. That's why the only condition of salvation is belief, is faith. God's doing it, not you. Therefore, the only thing you can do is believe or not. So, believe. He's, he's heralding to you to believe. So why don't you stand? Let's sing this song together. And if you believe it, herald it. And if you don't, hear it. And consider believing in it right now.
<laughs> hey, you can be seated. The next song we're going to do is called Joy to the World. You may have heard of it. It's a Christmas song. The first verses go like this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing, which I always thought was a very strange part of the verse. And then the next verse says this. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Um, okay, so you, you get the idea in the first two verses, right, that the, the sort of poetic theme of the song is that the whole physical world is singing joy over Christ's birth, right? And therefore, so should you. Um, heaven and nature singing, lands, rivers, lakes and streams, mountain hills and plains, all manners of topography are praising Jesus. And um, therefore, let you prepare in your heart room for the Savior, right? Okay, now, I don't, I don't think about the creation, of, I don't think about the world in those terms. I don't think about the natural world in terms of being joyful about Jesus. Um, I don't think of it as talking at all. I, now listen, I, I get the idea, the biblical idea, that the creation talks about creation. That, that I don't have any problem connecting the poetry with. So, for example, in—sorry, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. In Psalm 19, 1 to 4, you've probably heard this before. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Now, to me, that makes intuitive sense, okay? I think you can look at the world and you can get a sense of the greatness of the creator from the creation because it's, you know, a direct relationship. But I don't normally think of the creation as being glad about Jesus. That would sort of assume some kind of psychological consciousness about the plan of redemption I do not expect any of my objects to have. That may be terribly naive of me. There's one person who thinks that's funny. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> but nevertheless, the Bible speaks this way. Like, for example, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah 50 through 58 or so is all very messianic, pointing to the anointed one, pointing to Jesus. And it says this in 55, 12. Um, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You see, God says in Scripture that not only does creation declare praise over his creativeness, but that creation actually declares the praise of his redeeming work, right? Um, so the question is why, and, he, and here's why. Because we and it were bound together in the curse, and so we're bound together in the restoration, in Genesis 3, if you read the passage referring to the curse, when he gets to, when, when God gets to the man, he, say, he, he says, curse is the ground because of you. You see, in chapter 1, it said that God created human beings to be sort of the stewards and caretakers of his creation. That we were, we were designed to be bound together from the very beginning. We were to bring order and care into the whole world. That was what we were made to do and be. 
And so when the curse came through our rebellion, everything that we were, had administration over was subjected to the curse as well. I mean, think about it. Um, if, you've got a, a, if you've got a business, you've got one bad employee all the way at the bottom, who suffers? Not that much. But if the boss is terrible, who suffers? Everybody, right? And so if, if God's crowning creative achievement over creation falls, goes into rebellion and turns away from God, who, who gets affected? Everything gets affected. The curse is on everything. Um, and therefore, every rock and every stream and every tree has bark in the game of redemption. Um, and, and therefore, not only does it suffer under the curse, there is a sense in which the world, the whole world, not just us, not just our physical bodies, we're not just waiting for us to get out of here, everything God created awaits the redemption moment. The final coming and restoration. Listen to this passage in Romans 8 if you haven't heard it before. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then he says this, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, it's the third verse that really tells you what the song is all about. He comes to make his blessings flow. Where? As far, as far as the curse is found. Now, you might ask this question. I don't know when I started, John, so I'll try to. Is, what if I don't care about trees? Right? Well, you should because trees are kind of cool. They have all that xylem and phloem and, and, and whatnot. But um, here's theologically why it matters. It, it matters because what, it, what they need is what we need. When you come to Jesus, um, it, is it is encouraging and necessary that we receive a kind of moral redemption. But you see, that verse has built in it that we also need a physiological regeneration. We need a physical redemption just as much as the world does. Just as creation needs a physical redemption, so do we. I mean, I mean, think about, I mean, think about how, what's the science is going over the last 50 years, right? A lot of things that we considered moral, they say now are physical, right? So, you know, depression, you know, sometimes you can help yourself with that and, or hurt yourself with that, but there's physiological causes for lots of stuff, right? That's not, you don't have to fight that totally. I mean, you can get a little wiggy, right? But generally speaking, Christianity covers both. It assumes there are problems with us morally and mentally, and some of those problems are so intertwined, we're never going to get them apart. And until both get redeemed at the same time in the final redemption, we're not going to be totally free. That's why, even though we're totally morally redeemed when we're justified by believing in Jesus, there's still all kinds of junk that hangs around the rest of our lives. Theologians have called them sins of infirmity, sins of sickness. They're built into us, and they don't finally, we don't finally get free. What we discipline now will be dead then. The joy that's meant to come to the world comes to us. 
There's... There's this place in Paralandra, which is the middle book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, where um, the main character, Ransom, is on this island that he's never been to before, in a planet he's never been to before, and there's this fruit that he's never seen before, and he picks it, and he eats it, and it's amazing. And the first thing that comes to his mind when he finishes eating it is to pick another one and eat it. And then he has this moment of guilt where he goes, wait a second, that's wrong. And he realizes that he's on this planet where sin has never happened. And the idea that you just have to consume something just because it was good the first time, that that's just built into him. He doesn't even know where it's from. And so he disciplines it back. But there's there's so many things we just do out of compulsion. That, That if we saw them for what they were, we would long to be free of them. And we would groan with the earth. And so when the Savior comes, who points to the future final redemption of all things physical, the whole world, including our bodies, that ought to be something that we shout for joy over. So let's sing and shout for joy over it.
little bit earlier this morning, we sang a song called Angels from the Realms of Glory. Angels from the Realms of Glory. And um, at the end of every verse, there is, there's this line that, um, come and worship the newborn king. And one of the themes of many Christmas songs is that the little baby born in a manger that can't get a room at the end is the king. And that's, of course, why Herod gets all upset and wigs out and kills people because there's, he's a king. He's not just a kid, right? Um, and it, as you track through the four verses, each verse addresses a different group of people, right? It starts out with angels from the realms of glory, right? And why do angels need a king? Well, what does angel mean? Angel means messenger. Angels are heralds. They need something to talk about. They're like preachers. And, you know, if there's, there's nothing to talk about, they don't have a purpose. But because Jesus is the king, they have a purpose. They have something to herald. They have something to herald to each other. All, they have to, every, to everything that exists, they have something to talk about, right? The, the next is about shepherds. Now, shepherds are interesting because I mean, they're at the bottom, right? Shepherds are the poor. I mean, and these are, you know, in, in, in Luke, these are like third shift shepherds, so they're just not even the sharpest knife in the drawer for shepherds, right? So, you know, I'd say that every year, don't I? And uh, so, I mean, and, and, and the thing about it's not just poverty, it's that they're, that they're not part of, they're on the outside of the town, right? I mean, shepherds are a metaphor for being on the outside because they're the one, they're always out in the field. They're not in a town, right? Because they got to be out there, that's their job. And also, because of that, they don't have access, right? Wherever privilege is, wherever privilege is, they don't have the right to go in. But yet, where do the sh- angels who now have something to herald go first? To them, and later on, Jesus says, "What was one of the things that marks his ministry?" In the same Gospel of Luke, Luke writes, he says, "You go and you 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 want to know if I'm the Messiah? You go and you tell people, the blind see, the deaf hear, right? And what? And the good news is preached to the poor, right? I have made sure that the poorest, furthest out, least privileged person has as much access to the privilege of God's love and redeeming salvation and a knowledge of how to follow him with wisdom as the holiest priest and the richest merchant. Nobody has a privileged place because of this king, right? The third one is the sages, right? And the, and the verse says, come get a better vision, right? I mean, the sages are the cultural elite, right? Um, they're, they're seeking a b- bigger vision and um, they, they, want a, a, they want a unification of knowledge so that they can really show how to live and what to be like and so that they can have true wisdom. And the, the Magi are meant to represent that in Matthew's gospel. And you see, just as this king is king for them, he's king for these guys. I mean, Jesus is the greater vision. He is, he is the unifying one. And note that there was something of that truth in their science that God embedded into the astronomy and astrology of the Magi, a star, to lead them from their astronomy and astrology to the unified truth. Even within the knowledge of every cultural elite, there is some common grace truth that if seen as truthfully as you can see it, it would lead you somewhere. And that star is meant to lead you to the manger where this king reigns. And the last verse, less religious people think they're better, is for the saint, right? I don't know if you remember the verse, but it says that the saints are huddled in their temples, and they're full of hope, and they're full of fear, 
Why? Because every saint has made a bet. That's why. We can put the best face on it we want to. We can say that we're absolutely 100% sure of our faith. But there is an extent to which all of us, belief is not 100% easy. There are always things that push in doubt and cloud the truth and make things less clear. And every saint, to some extent, is huddled within a temple of his own or her own knowledge of God and who he is. And there is, there is great hope and there is some level of fear to wonder if this king will really actually come to his temple. And that's why both of these verses quote Haggai 2 that says the desired of all nations will come because it was the second rebuilt temple that wasn't much to look at and the prophet said God is going to bring his great, the one, the desired of all nations here. And so when you come to the end of that, one of the things I think that the um, inquiring or cynical mind would ask is, okay, yeah, Nick, and, and it's fantastic that Jesus came and he, he came to like real people in the temple. There was Anna and there was Simeon. I, I think Simeon's name. Uh, p- people who were, were at the temple with hope and fear. And Jesus, they got to hold Jesus. And, and it just shows how Jesus coming did that. But dude, look at, look at us now. Look at us now. We're, we're waiting again. There's some sense in which we are similar Yeah, we know more. Yeah, we can comfort ourselves that he did come once. So it's more reasonable that he will come again. But aren't we still here huddled in a temple filled with a certain level of hope and a certain level of fear? And why isn't he here? What would be the purpose of his leaving after he came? And in four minutes, I'm not going to sort that all out for you. And I probably couldn't anyway. But here's one of the things that I think is, is an important observation from the whole of the Bible and how God is creating a people for himself. Do you remember 1 Samuel 8? You all read it this morning probably, right? It's a little, little obscure. 1 Samuel 8 is where the Israelites ask for a king. Right? God's given them a law and he's given them a prophet so they know what to do. Right? They, they know the day-to-day and if they get in trouble, they have a prophet that can tell them what God wants them to do. But they don't have any government. There's no government. And so these people are like, this is so chaotic, we need a king. And, and God's response to them was, that, that's not my intention. And the whole history of God's people co- begins to come apart at that moment when they get a king. Why? Why? Because it screws up the whole program of what God's doing. God's people aren't supposed to have a king. They're not supposed—that's why you're not supposed to treat the pastor like he's a king or anybody in the church. The church doesn't have a king. Why? Because God's people aren't supposed to have a king. Well, why aren't God's people supposed to have a king? And here's why. Because God is building the greatest kingdom that's ever existed, and here's the thing that makes it the greatest kingdom that's ever existed. Because it will be inhabited by a people who have the greatest king and yet don't need one. Every kingdom in the history of the world has needed a king and has not had an adequate one. Just like any government, any place, any leader, any group of people, every people, every people needed, needed, needed a leader. I mean, think about this coming election. We're all just like, ah, what are we going to do? We all need a leader and what? Is anyone adequate for it? No, none of them are, right? And we all know it. We're just going to pick the not worst one. 
because every people has needed a king and no king has been up to it. And that is the thing that God is doing. And you can't create a people who don't need a king if you're there. And so God gives just enough to bind his people together, to build them up, to help them encourage each other and strengthen each other and preach the gospel to the ends of the world so that a people would be created who don't need a king. And then in the end, you add the king and you have a kingdom in which you have the greatest king possible and a people who need no king. I think that's God's vision for the great kingdom when he renews the earth and when he makes a people who are so his, who are so given to love and so given to goodness and truth that we need no king and then he comes and we can just enjoy him as king. It's like when a parent raises their child and their child is grown and they don't have to parent anymore and they get to just enjoy and the kid turned out right. <laughs> I should probably stipulate that. And they live in another house. <laughs> and they get to just enjoy the child. And that kingdom that he is building, it is necessary he be in some sense physically absent while it is grown. While we come to maturity together. And... It is that vision that Christ focused, and it's that vision that we herald. It is the vision that we are a people who are being made by our king to not need a king, and yet all the more long for when that king comes so that he can enjoy us and we can enjoy him forever. Do you or will you believe that? That's all that's left for you to do. To reaffirm it or to believe it. And God will do the work of regeneration. And God will do the work of resurrection. And God will bring the sweetness now that is the first taste of the glory that will follow. Merry Christmas.
would you stand for the benediction? Father, would you pour out your blessing on your people? Would you give them a sense of peace that is meant to come knowing that there is a king? Would you give them a sureness of your mercy that comes as you reconcile yourself with sinners through faith alone because of what Christ has done? Will you stamp in us your image, the image of the second Adam, Jesus? And will you fill us with the joy we are meant to have at this season completely independent of its gifts and accoutrements. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming and eat cookies in peace.